the best way to become a good chef is to force yourself to eat your own cooking. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum. On this episode of the podcast, we have Max Henry. Max is a professional parkour coach and athlete, as well as the author of the Parkour Roadmap. Max comes to me from a strong recommendation from the legendary Rafe Kelly and did not disappoint. Today, we dove into how he implements parkour into team sports athletes and why it's so important to do so. How Max breaks out of his traditional analytical mindset to approach the creative side of training and life. And finally, Max takes us down the rabbit hole of how he wrote a book. And I, I found this super interesting as trying to write a book myself and trying to go down the process of actually writing and getting what's in your brain onto a piece of paper and creating an entire holistic story from start to finish. And Max takes us down his journey of how he did just that. This one is another ripper, so I get your pen and paper ready. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you have a happy new year. I hope we crush it this new year. I'm looking forward to taking this to Mars. Keep chopping wood. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with a Yoakum Strength coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use Podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite-level guests to unravel what high-performance really is. All right, well, Max, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm uh, very excited to be here. Yeah, we've just been talking and BSing for the last 13 minutes about kind of your background and parkour and, and the donor sport of all of it. But can you kind of tell the listeners, and I told you this uh, before, but I'm always interested in how people really get into the world of parkour. Can you tell the listeners how you got into the world of parkour and how you how you started in this sport that is kind of like a YouTube version, like everybody's like they're making YouTube videos and now there's like real legit athletes doing insane things in this sport? Yeah, I'm super excited that that's your opinion of it. Uh, I started parkour in 2007. So that's kind of the end of the first wave of American practitioners. It started up in in the UK and Europe a little bit earlier, 2003, 2005. But when I started in the New York City area, there were maybe 30 people Mm -hmm. that did it in a hundred mile radius, Uh, super tight community, really, really small. And as a young kid, I actually did gymnastics. Uh, I jumped all over the place. My folks had the classic thought that we need to put this kid into some sport before he falls all over the the basement apartment. So they put me in gymnastics and I did competitive gymnastics till I was nine. Um, So I had kind of a good base to get into something a little bit deeper from that. And then uh, as I got more and more into gymnastics, seven, eight years old, did uh, baseball 
and always loved baseball growing up. Did that through middle school, through high school, and started parkour toward the tail end of high school. So that was kind of the moment I had to decide if I wanted to push for baseball moving forward, keep going with that into college, or if I wanted to do parkour. And thankfully, I'm, you know, 5'9 and 160 pounds. So being a professional baseball player was not uh, the most probable outcome following that path and being right at the forefront of a brand new sport, super exciting. And I absolutely fell in love with parkour from the first day that I found out about it. So I just got swept up into that community um, right around 2007. Yeah. That's freaking awesome. How did you get introduced to parkour? Did you just see it on YouTube one day and go and try it in the park? Or like, did you have friends that were doing it? How did you get introduced to it? Yeah, that was pretty much the classic YouTube story. Um, A buddy of mine had seen an interview with David Bell on like a local, you know, CBS New York or something like that. And uh, David Bell is one of the founders of parkour. So he came out to hang out the next afternoon, told me about this crazy guy who was jumping off of buildings. We tried to find it on YouTube. We could not find it because for the life of him, he couldn't remember the name of the sport. And we ended up finally, after like 20 minutes of searching, just typing in like Spider-Man jumps off building and survives and like the third video down was David Bell's parkour video. And, you know, the first two probably were some scarring <laughs> fail videos. And we eventually we found it and we realized it's called parkour and then just YouTube deep dive. Um, I was 14, which is a really good age to get into a very niche thing. You've got a lot of time and <laughs> a lot of energy to spend investigating whatever you're passionate about. Yeah, yeah, that that's freaking awesome. He didn't even know the name of the sport now, and now it's it's just blowing up as like one of the fastest growing sports. What when you like when you started? So you did this YouTube thing. You were just watching people. How did you go and imp- imp- implement that? Then you know, like it's not like baseball where it's just like there's these set rules and ba- like you've kind of like been at least and in, in integrated in it as a kid and like you're throwing a baseball with your dad or doing something like that. You know, like we kind of have the rules. Was it just like okay, I watch this video, I'm gonna go find a park and go rip it, or like how how did you get integrated in that and where did that kind of progress to to where you're at now? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Was watching <laughs> yes. YouTube videos. Uh, at the time, too, there were no tutorials. So now if you go on YouTube and you search, you know, a specific parkour movement or something like that, you can find what it was called. You can find eight, 10, 100 videos showing you how to do it. At the time, there was none of that. And so we didn't know what any of the moves were called. The forums, half of them were in French. Um, so we had no idea what, you know, some of these terms were. So a lot of times we were making up our own names for things when we got started. And we just went out to like the local elementary school, which happened to be across the street from the library where we'd go and surf the internet and look at these YouTube videos and uh, just pick like two or three moves that we had seen in the video and try and figure it out. And it was absolute joy uh, (laughs) looking back to, you know, have that kind of unfettered freedom and time to explore. And there was no... You know, the, the great thing about learning a sport that's established, right, is you have this path, um, but simultaneously that path establishes boundaries for how you look at your relationship to the sport, your uh, relationship to the other players or participants. And, you know, we got to create those boundaries for ourselves when we started out. And it was 
uh, really, really an amazing experience. And I benefited from my gymnastics background a little bit. Um, I had a pretty good body awareness. I knew how to do a couple flips on the flip side. I'd never done anything outside of a gym and I'd had coaches drill into my brain. You know, you never do these things without a spotter. You never do them without the correct progressions. You never do them outside. So even the basics, a lot of them, I'd know kind of how to do it sort of, but you're relearning how to do it in this new context of a totally different environment and, you know, breaking through some of those kind of brain calluses that you <laughs> developed through coaching. Oh, that, that that's funny because Flynn, um, Flynn Disney mentioned that today on the podcast as well. He was talking about, it's almost like that the more established something is, the more it almost traps you in that. And it's really good for almost like quick progressions through things. But like you're always going to be kind of tethered to that where you mentioned like that you had that time to explore and that creative freedom to start. Did you ever feel like you 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 lost a little bit of that as it got more established, as you became more professional, as you became like more into the field? And what was that kind of journey like? Like, how did you make the decision to go from the 14 year old in the park, probably just ripping stuff for fun to like who you are now where it's it's not not a a job per se, you know, but like where it's like, it's like weighing down on you or anything like that. But like now it's more professional, you know, like now you're, you're an athlete in that sport. It's, it's less 14 year old at the park, but it's still a sport where you like, you kind of want to keep that 14 year old in the park kind of mentality, like where you're free like that. Like, did you ever find yourself like almost get too funneled down into something too serious about it and then had to pull back? And how did, how did you make that decision to get more serious in quotations about the sport itself? Yeah, I got really lucky in a lot of ways at the beginning, uh, being in the New York city area. So I, I grew up on long Island, uh, like five minutes from Queens. So Western long Island, I could take the train to Manhattan in 30 minutes. And so I had a big, by you know, as far as the time went, I had a big community around me that I had some access to. Um, I also had a lot of folks that would come from internationally. So the Callum Powell's, and those types of people who were a little bit more experienced that were setting the kind of bar for what parkour was overseas. A lot of times they'd stop by New York if they were coming to the United States. And by virtue of being there and one of the first ones, I'd get to kind of pick the brains of all of these younger masters of the sport as I was developing. And you you kind of almost accidentally network when you're in that type, type of small community and uh, especially that early on, probably by like year five, I realized that I just had met or spoken with pretty much every professional athlete or coach or gym owner in the international scene by virtue of being one of the like 200 people that was doing it early on. And that was incredibly fortunate for me. And that led to a lot of these other opportunities that I ended up having where I've gotten to do, you know, commercials for American Eagle and be on a billboard in Times Square and uh, compete in Brazil and Tampa and all these other places and coach in four different continents. And uh, parkour has taken me in a ton of different directions. And in that time, I think I've felt what you said. Absolutely. The commercial side, especially when you're turning the thing that you love and the thing that you love to think about and practice into your living, whether it's a traditional sport, whether it's, uh, you know, an art, especially there's always going to be a little bit of tension there, uh, and difficulty finding that balance. And when I graduated college, I'd kind of juggled 
parkour part-time, done a couple jobs here and there. I moved into a van, did parkour all across North America and Europe for three years, nonstop. Uh, Did a bunch of those big jobs, did a couple movies and got to see what the professional parkour lifestyle was like. And it was awesome. Super, super fun. Um, But I also kind of slowly came to the realization that I didn't have the perfect personality to be immersed in that world full time uh, in that particular facet and still have the same kind of joy and and passion for the sport that I had when I started out. And that's always been sort of my like lodestone is remember, you know, the 14 year old excited kid that that loved that sport and the passion that you had then and find ways to keep your training fresh and maintain your progression, maintain your physical health um, through the lens of, you know, keeping that passion at the center. Yeah. And th- th- that's amazing. I-, I talk all the time. Like if you want to get really, really good at something, like you got to have that passion, you got to be obsessed because the only way to get really, really good at something is to do it like obsessively. Like you got to do it like all the time. And I'm sure you were doing it for hours at a time. And it's like, that's the only way you're really going to get to the level that you want to get to. And it's, it's, it's like trying to compete, trying to like, if I was, if I didn't have the passion for parkour and I was trying to compete with somebody like you that had that like burning fire, like there's just no way if we were even the same level athletically, there's no way I would be able to compete with you because you have that burning fire that's allowing you to like go do it for six hours a day. So I, I think that's that's super powerful. When when you're approaching parkour and, and you're going from this 14 year old where it is the the unestablished kind of play aspect of parkour to the high level of skill that you have now and that, that you demonstrate on Instagram and, and social media and just to be the professional that you are how are you like how did you go about kind of fine-tuning the the skill acquisition piece of that like how did you go from free play to the the technical model of like maybe actually like okay i'm gonna set out to actually learn something and i'm always interested in that like yin and yang balance between the 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 free play aspect and creatively learning something to like also like okay this is the task at hand and i want to dominate this task and how you're going about that that yin and yang approach to learning skills and kind of almost in parkour, it's kind of like almost creating skills too. As, as you're looking at an environment, you're like almost creating a skill that you have to do. Like, how do you go about that in your training? Yeah, uh, I think the initial step to kind of take it back and put it into context with that skill acquisition point you were talking about, uh, a lot of the listeners are probably a little bit more familiar with the sport like baseball. I think there's always a balance when you're developing your skills between I want to say, you know, kind of harnessing the data and harnessing the obsession and the willingness to just drill something over and over again and perfect it with this more experimental side, that free play side. So you could be the most obsessed athlete. Let's say you're, you know, you're a pitcher, you're trying to improve the spin rate on your two seamer. And there's going to be a guy that just goes and throws in the bullpen five times a week, you know, puts the hours in. But if that guy's not playing around with his grip, if he's not getting feedback from maybe, uh, you know, actual hard data that's telling him how different grips, how different wrist positions, how different arm slots are affecting that spin rate, it doesn't necessarily matter how much obsessed work he's putting in. This this other person that maybe is able to put in two days a a week, but they're working a little bit more Uh, maybe creatively and intelligently kind of hand in hand 
uh, taking advantage of a feedback system that is able to give them hard data to improve, excuse me, to improve on, but um, also letting themselves experiment and not uh, getting stuck into this like rigid practice system, that person often will see better gains uh, short term a little bit, but definitely long term. So for me, parkour was really similar. Uh, I'm a pretty nerdy person. I like to get down and dirty with some data. I've got a math degree. So I <laughs> yes. am very like down to just sit and look at some numbers, get uh, a hard feedback system that's telling me if what I'm doing is, is helpful or not. And I was like that when I started as well. Um, so even though I was trying to figure out a lot of these moves and I maybe didn't know what it was called, I was obsessively watching videos. I would look at you know, the best person in the world at one of these movement patterns. And I'd say, okay, what are they doing differently? I'd go and break it down often like frame by frame, you know, watch their feet, watch how they were loading. Uh, even before I knew anything about biomechanics or strength training, uh, you know, you just kind of look and see how their body's moving differently and then try and emulate that person in your training uh, or emulate how they're training. So if somebody was really good at jumping to a rail and staying on it and landing on it and they put a blog post out or an Instagram post or something. And, you know, told me that their method was they pick 10 different jumps to rails every day and they do each one 10 times. I would go and do that for the next six months and see how it affected my training. And uh, I think the emulation side was super important, but only because I coupled it with, uh, with kind of an eye toward feedback. Cause without that feedback, you just create a loop where you're, hoping you're doing the right thing, but you're never actually able to determine if you're <laughs> progressing or regressing. Yeah. And uh, you talked about like the baseball side of things too. And it's like the, 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 it's like the creative person needs the grind mindset, but the grind mindset needs the creative aspect, but they both kind of hate each other. You know, like the, the creative guy that's practicing twice a week and playing around, like hates the guy that's just like robotically going five days a week and the five days a week guys like, Oh, that guy, the creative guy isn't working out, but you're like missing the, 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 the benefit of the, each other side. And you're like, when you have that creative aspect it's like that it's that non-linear like steps that you can get you talk about like working twice a week it's like that person is experimenting over and over again and figure something out and you get that non-linear progression where it's like we we kind of want it like we talk about like that that robotic side it's like we want it to all be linear and like we're like okay if i do this i'm gonna get this i'm gonna get this but you're kind of missing out on the magic of the, like that non-linear growth that that creative aspect kind of gives you and when you you mentioned that you had the math degree, you talk about being a coffee connoisseur. Like you have this analytical side to you, and that that's interesting to me too because I see coaches a lot of times that have that analytical side. I have a couple of buddies like that that really struggle with this, like struggle with viewing sport this way, struggle with viewing that nonlinear side of things because their brain just works in a way. And I, and I, it's taken me a while to realize too. It's like my brain needs to probably work more in that linear way. Like I, I'm I'm too far into the creative aspect. I need to draw myself back into the linear way. But where they're on the opposite, like they're too far in the linear way and they can't draw themselves back out into the creative way. How as a person that seems to be more, seems to be more naturally driven into that analytical, more naturally like accelerating at that linear approach in your head. Like, how did you get yourself to step out and view things in into a like to be able to allow yourself to go into that creative set, to go go into that nonlinear set and be, a, be all right with that? Because I know a lot of coaches out there struggle with that thought process. Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that I often think about. <laughs> and I really think the answer is that parkour isn't completely unique in this sense, but it's 
very unique in that it's 100% environmentally based. So especially when I started, there were no facilities anywhere in the world that were had any structures to practice parkour. So if I wanted to practice my sport from the very beginning, I had to keep my eyes open and look around for opportunities. And growing up in the suburbs outside of New York City, it wasn't like growing up in, you know, the London estates where they're infamous for these massive sprawling wall sets and you walk in and you're like, oh yeah, it makes sense that people do parkour here. Uh, a lot of it was just walking around, hoping that you find something to spark <laughs> a little bit of creativity and get your brain wrapped around kind of how to train and approach these spaces. So I think practicing parkour gave me a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more openness and receptivity um, just to, yeah, to, to keeping my approach, how I wanted to train open to the constraints that the environment presented. Cause it was easy for me to say, I want to do, you know, 50 jumps between this wall and this wall. And then I go outside and it's raining or it's snowing and we have one spot that is undercover and it's a totally different type of location. So all of a sudden, you know, my entire training plan for that day is, is flipped around. And as a coach in parkour, that's uh, something that I really try to impress on my students. And you see a lot of kids kind of struggle with it at the beginning, but as they adopt it, it really helps their practice flourish and they're able to carry it into other aspects of their life as well. This flexible mindset where they can just walk into a space after, you know, six months or a year of parkour. And it's like, all right, for our warm up, I want you to just walk me through verbally 15 things that you see in the next 10 seconds, you know, go. <laughs> and you just release that uh, inner kind of kid that's like looking around at all of the things and just imagining all these possibilities. And so since I didn't naturally maybe have a tendency in that direction, uh, I think the training helped my brain build that channel. And then I was able to put all the energy and kind of analytical focus that I naturally had into that channel uh, and reach a little bit more of the balance that we had talked about earlier. That's that's tough to hit. Yeah, that, that's freaking awesome. I, I talk all the time. It's like if you want to leave the box of your brain, like you leave the box and like you talk like parkour force, you leave the box, you know, and uh, in the strength world, American sport world, it's, it's like you're. A lot of these coaches are really stuck like truly stuck in a box like a like a rectangular room with like a bunch of racks in there so it's like it's all they see all day and they're actually stuck in there and it's all they see so like if you were to tell them look around and see the things you create it's like what like what are you looking at to be able to create there you know so like because that was one of the big things too it's like uh, i had rafe on the podcast and he was uh he was telling me all these things and i was like okay like that that's a great idea and but it didn't really put it together until COVID hit and all the gyms closed and all i had mm -hmm. left was to train outdoors and then I started seeing everything he was talking about. I'm like, man, that is so cool. It's like you're just forced to leave the box in your eyes and you're going to figure out things and ways to train and understand a lot of what you were seeing was strictly because you were trapped in trapped in your own box. And you mentioned like your quote was like, keep your eyes open, which I, I think is huge in so many aspects as a coach, but just as a person, like keep your eyes open for the creative creativeness that's around you and the training that is all around you. And I think a lot of times specifically in American sports world. And, and it's cool that you had the baseball background growing up because I'm sure you got a taste of this at least in, in high school. I know it's it gets worse in college. I promise you that. But like it's like the it, the eyes are not open anymore. Like it's it's like the this structured way of training that kind of loses 
the magic of what training and what movement is. And then we talked about that before too. It's like, now we're butchering what parkour is, you know, like, you know, like uh, the American sports are taking parkour because now it's been proven as this donor sport and it can help with variability and help with injury prevention and all these things. Um, and now we're taking it and we're trying to like linearize parkour in our setting. And like, we have really no idea what we're talking about when they say this, like <laughs> land this way. Land. It's like, no, go watch a parkour athlete. Like, and I'm not saying do everything. I'm not saying go send your offense lineman to go do flips like they're doing off of like buildings, but just go watch them. And then like, take those pieces from there or at least go talk to a parkour athlete and see if, if what you're saying is right and i just feel like we're losing a lot of that magic when, when when we're trying to linearize that because we are stuck in our box yeah i mean crossover whether it's within your sport or not is i think the people who take advantage of that and do it in an intelligent way because that's always the caveat here is like you, you can't just be the wild creative that has all these great ideas and then you just don't put them into action. You don't train, you don't put the work in, but the folks who don't have the creative ideas, you know, where their training is going to get them their results. You can chart it out and you're like, all right, in six months, you're going to be right here because you're doing this exact thing every day. And that's where your numbers are going to lead you. There's not going to be a big surprise there. There's not going to be a huge quantum leap forward in their training or their athletes training. Uh, And I think that in many, many sports, the folks who do a little bit of thinking outside the box, even in traditional sports, uh, again, like baseball is the sport that I know the best. You look at, you know, the way that uh, the Tampa Bay Rays changed defense in Major League Baseball when they started implementing shifts 10 years ago. And now it got to the point of effectiveness. And that obviously that came from the whole Oakland days, you know, obsession with statistics and all these hard data points that they then were able to just tweak in a creative way that nobody else noticed. And as it gets implemented more and more effectively in different ways, you get to the point where baseball now has to implement rules to potentially reduce or remove shifts moving forward. And same thing, what you're seeing with a lot of baseball pitchers, you know, they, they got the data, people were getting wacky with different grips and wind tunnels and having them experiment in all these different situations. And it's provided one of the biggest performance boosts unexpectedly in 30 to 50 years in the sport where you're seeing massive velocity improvements and crazy spin rate improvements. So I love to see that in traditional sports, especially because they are a little bit more rigid. They have more tradition, more history. Uh, It's harder to break out of that mold, but um, in parkour, you know, we kind of inherently absorb that as part of the culture when we started out. And it's nice to then cross pollinate with some of these other sports. Like you were saying with the offensive linemen, um, I've gotten to work with a couple uh, like semi-professional and collegiate athletes in different sports. And, you know, the way that an offensive lineman, for instance, uses their torso, their hands, their upper body, how they're able to create tension through their upper body, gymnastics training, parkour training, all these things are able to put them into like planes of movement and applying force in different ways that they're not able to necessarily do if they're just benching and overhead pressing and they're able to just, yeah, experiment in tons of different ways and parkour. We're able to learn from it in the same way. You know, I'm able to, to see how they're engaging their shoulders, their elbows, what body position they're doing, how they're loading, you know, core to upper body from their hips down to manipulate these, these massive forces that we don't experience in parkour. And, uh, yeah, I love just keeping keeping my eyes open 
and looking around. <laughs> that that's freaking awesome. You, you you talk. I love the so Ed Ben Kramer on the podcast, and he's his background is uh, be, uh Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and um hand fighting, and and then he kind of he mastered that like aspect of it, and then drew it back into American football, and he talked about watching American football players kind of the same way you did where it's like it's that it's just that little bit of an outside perspective on how like you are used to watching parkour athletes and watching them move in this way and now you're drawing it back into this American football world where it is structured and you're able to watch them in a different way and train them in a way, different way which I think is super awesome and Ben Kramer had very similar things that you were talking about so when you have and you talked about I love how you talked about like implementing these things because how their hand and torso and body is going to have to rotate to block or uh, or um, pass rush with the with these big guys how are or how would you implement parkour principles into these american sports because i i asked column about this and he's like i don't, I don't really know i don't really train american sport athlete and he didn't really care <laughs> which is funny but i was like oh that's that's honesty but you've actually had that experience which is really really cool how would you implement it if, if you have an american football coach listening or just yourself how would you implement some of these principles and, and ways to to look at american sports and, and apply some of the principles from parkour yeah, I mean, I don't, I never played American football growing up other than flag football, <laughs> you know, just like going out on Thanksgiving with your friends and tackling each other into leaves. But I do think the thing that parkour has to offer for many, many, many sports that I would encourage other coaches to experiment with if they do want to kind of dig a little bit into parkour technique as a form of cross training uh, is the ability to create and absorb force in literally every plane of movement <laughs> that you could imagine. You can put yourself into a position where you're having to either create or absorb force upside down, vertically, laterally, like prone, supine, everything. Uh, there is a situation in parkour where we've kind of messed with some technique to do that. And because our sport isn't necessarily about dealing with variables that are moving like an opponent, <laughs> you know, we're able to finesse the technique to the point, I guess we're able to finesse technique in a way that eliminates a lot of the external variables and allows you to maximize what your athlete or what your body is doing in that moment. So landing is a great example. Uh, you know, basketball players would be the obvious choice parkour we're used to landing on one leg landing both legs landing with our legs staggered landing with rotation landing with forward and backwards rotation in additional in addition to horizontal rotation uh and we've developed techniques to distribute and handle that force safely from much much bigger heights than your average nba or ncaa basketball player is dropping from the rim or from a dunk or you know going up to to get the ball so that's a sport where just working with a parkour athlete on the basics of landing barefoot, seeing them move, having maybe a role model to emulate, and then putting that into practice by having your athletes work on small controlled quiet landings from all of these different uh, approaches, essentially, would probably be a good option to mitigate some of the classic basketball leg injuries that you get. Um and those are big dudes, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of great work. And I know that there's a lot of landing work that already goes into basketball. And then again, in any sport crossover, it becomes how much time are you putting into this versus how much time could you be putting in working on your technique or your, just your base strength and building a bigger engine. 
Um, but from an injury prevention standpoint, I think for a lot of sports, any sport that involves landing and same thing for American football, you know, if you're like a, a tight end receiver and you're getting pushed around and landing in all these positions, knowing how to roll out of those positions and learning some purposeful ways to roll, uh, as opposed to just kind of letting your body handle it naturally is going to give you a broader base of safe options when you are in a situation that might lead to injury. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're always going to prevent injury, but you've got this palette of things that now you can choose. Okay. I know how to land staggered. I know how to land with one hand on the ground while I'm holding the ball. I know how to land and roll onto my back, I know how to land and roll sideways, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's where I see the biggest crossover for traditional sports uh, where parkour maybe could help coaches and, and athletes. And uh, I think creative coaches though, could see a lot, a lot more that that was sport specific, depending on, you know, position and, and what sport they're trying to improve. Yeah. There's so many good points there. We talked with Flynn talking about the, the very similar things. Um, And he talked about one, one way that he approached it was more psychological. And it's like, if the body hasn't been in that position before, or it, it fears this position or knows that it, maybe it's been hurt in this landing in this position before it kind of will find a way to get out of it and you'll land weird or awkward. So he's talking about kind of, same thing, adding movement options, exposing the body to it in training so that the body knows it can go there um, and it's able to go there and it knows what happens when it gets there. I talked, I gave an example about these American football guys um, and when they were landing, like they would either trip or they would get cut out where somebody's going for their knees. And when they're falling, they would they would brace with their hands stiff uh, and either fingers, hands, wrists, shoulders, where it's just not a very great landing and it would just like not feel good or injury in the shoulder. Um, and we started implementing some of the tumbling techniques. Um, and then we started to see almost instantly, as soon as they were falling, every single person, now that they knew basically they could roll, they would just roll out of it. They roll out of it back under their feet and like get out of that position, um, which I thought, wow, I'm like, holy crap, like there's something here. Like it's super cool adding that movement option and then seeing them grab and use that. Um, one of the points that you did mention, you're like, okay, how much time do we spend on this compared to like building a better engine? Like what, when, when you were working with these athletes, or if you were to design a program, what would that practically look like? Cause I know my brain is going to go into the woo woo and the, like the big picture stuff that I like, and then you're going to have a coach like, okay, that doesn't make it like, that's great. But how do we apply that? How would you, how would you do this? Like how, maybe it's a warm up, or maybe it's replacing their jump training. What would you approach this as? And how do you, what, how much of this do you think the athletes need? Yeah, I, I mean, again, just going, I'll go generic because obviously it's going to be super sport specific um, with how much impact they're taking. A lot of parkour you could probably look at as moderate, like light to moderate intensity plyometric work. And you could probably incorporate it the same way that coaches would do that. So um, you could do it as a warm up that was a little bit you know, once you've kind of gotten everything loose and you wanted to do something that was a little bit more moderate intensity, using parkour as like light plyometric work to then lead into drills or lead into lifting, et cetera, like strength training. Um, also, you could just do probably like a three-day intervention <laughs> for a lot of these athletes where they're just doing it like an hour or less a day. And once you've learned these skills, obviously they're not going to be able to apply them in parkour specific contexts. Like you said, you know, we're not going to take an offensive lineman and say, all right, and I want you to now be able to running jump 15 feet, land on a rail, 12 and a half feet up safely every single time with control. That's not the, the goal for them. The goal for them is, you know, if you get pushed backwards, we want your, you know, you, we want your body to know not to post back 
and have 315 pounds plus, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the guy pushing you leaning down onto your elbows and your wrists, we want you to establish these good movement practices to distribute that force safely. Um, so I would probably recommend from the injury prevented prevention stance, going with like one or two, maybe three, just specific, like 45 to an hour minute long technical sessions where that's just the focus. It's very clear to the practitioners like, Hey, you know, this is what you're going to get out of this today. And if you wanted to use it a little bit more consistently, uh, I would probably program it as like moderate to light or light to moderate plyometric work and incorporate it either into, yeah, those like jump and sprint days. If you've got those fast twitch athletes or as like a warm up, if you're trying to prime somebody's CNS before they're, you know, hitting weights, that's yep. not going to be the worst way. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, and one of the things that you mentioned during this whole talk is you talked about how parkour athletes are have basically find themselves in all these positions, inverted, like falling, rolling in these massively different positions. And, and we look at your Instagram page and you see yourself in all these positions, like swinging from bars, jumping off one leg, landing on a like doing all these insane things. And I'm always interested in like, how do you yourself prepare for the demands of your sport? Because the demands of your sport are pretty crazy. There's there's less perception reaction with like a different opponent, but like the actual forces that are going through your body and the things that you're doing with your body physically are pretty insane. And, and it seems like you're, you're still standing, you're here talking to me. You're not dead. You're not broken. Uh, and I'm sure maybe you probably have been broken before, but you're not broken in front of me. You're good. So how do you prepare for the demands of your sport that are so insane? Like how, how do you survive what you're putting your body through? Yeah. At the beginning, it was really building a technical base. Um, I think that parkour is very similar to a martial art or gymnastics in some ways when you're starting out building a really strong technical base, understanding what your body's doing in the movement is the key thing at the very beginning. You want to just get comfortable, um, moving kind of through the idealized versions of all of the things that you're doing. So if you have your checklist of the parkour basic moves, there's a couple vaults, you know, you learn how to swing and land and, you just go through all of those, do them in the perfect setup where you don't have to worry about any of those added variables of, you know, speed, angle, rotation, et cetera. And you learn those and you get comfortable with those. And then you start to feed that variability in. And on top of that, if you're the type of person that I am, you know, I also got very into strength training. Um, gymnastics was a good thing for me at a very young age. I started out just kind of normalizing, like after a session, we would go and coach would be working us up towards like full planche pushups, things like that, where you're getting pretty high level body weight skills. And so incorporating strength into my parkour training came pretty naturally. It was also a really heavy focus early on in the parkour scene. It wasn't necessarily the most intelligently programmed strength training. A lot of it was like, I know Callum has probably also talked about this, but it would be, you know, like bear crawl 400 meters forwards and backwards up and down stairs. And that is going to build some pretty solid general strength. But if you're trying to improve parkour specific performance, it's not the quickest way to do it or the most efficient way. Um, so I built a pretty solid foundation at the beginning through some of that kind of old school parkour training 
Um, just, you know, did a lot of calisthenics that I'd picked up from gymnastics. And then as I got a little bit older, got into Olympic lifting, a good friend of mine down in Miami is a strength coach down there. He's worked with some NBA athletes. Uh, he's worked with the U S Olympic, uh, figure skating team. And he's very, very good Olympic lifting coach. So he came to visit me, taught me some Olympic lifts. And we started kind of talking about programming and nerding out over that. And he got me a little bit into more traditional uh, strength training and, and weightlifting training. And I'd mentioned this to you before we started as well, but a uh, recent addition for me to improve the speed side of kind of my training has been to work with a gentleman out here in Denver, Colorado named John Reynolds, who was a... Uh, U.S. Air Force Academy athlete in track and field set some Colorado state records for triple jump and actually came out of parkour as his first sport. So parkour was the donor sport for him to then get into triple jump where he was on the Olympic track until he had a couple injuries that he's, you know, on the mend from. So for him or for me, rather working with him, you know, I get to see what his training looked like at the Olympic Training Center down in Colorado Springs uh, with a little bit more of a focus on classic track and field plyometric work. And we've chatted a lot about how to incorporate that into parkour, which is already super plyometric. And also if you're then balancing that with weightlifting or powerlifting or any other kind of cross training, it's really, really easy to get burnt out. So it's been a lot of juggling, a lot of just learning to listen to your body by waking up incredibly sore and with minor overuse injuries and <laughs> realizing that you went a little bit too crazy the week before. And for me now, I'd say summer and spring and fall are a little bit heavier parkour specific. I'm usually out there jumping around four or five times a week at varying intensity, uh, especially getting into my thirties. So I usually will have like one really intense parkour training day. And the other ones are kind of more maintenance sessions uh, where I'm just going out, finding fun challenges and keeping my technique sharp. And then on top of that, I'll do usually a day of plyometric specific work and then one or two days where I'm doing a little bit more weight training. So that's where I'm at now. Winter, it, it shifts a little bit and I do like three days of parkour training a week and and up the weight training to about three times a week. That's awesome. Do you, did you notice a huge uh, improvement? Like, what are the improvements you noticed when you started weightlifting and and you started doing these things? Because Colin talked about a, a massive improvement, but he also mentioned the, the the point of like it led to one of the biggest injuries uh, that he's ever had too. Because he was like you talked about like the burnout, like trying to juggle everything is is pretty crazy. It's like parkour has these massive like plyometric components to it already, and then trying to add on like a weight training program and like a speed program and plyometrics to that is <laughs> is pretty hard for the body to handle. So, did you notice a massive difference when you added these? things in um and and did you ever did you that you talked about having to pull back but how how did you like decide to like hey this is this is my balance and this is how i'm going to survive yeah i did notice a huge difference right when i started uh learning kind of the basics of olympic lifting and implementing olympic lifting in particular that for me was the most immediate transition to seeing gains in my parkour training and i think it hit at a good time also because it was about 18 so I was building more strength naturally. I'd already developed a lot of speed through four years of parkour training, and I'd kind of maxed out my, my technical parkour side. 
And I just needed more. I needed more strength to, if I wanted to continue to develop force in parkour. So that was really good timing for me. And that's kind of what helped me catapult from sort of being a local athlete in the New York area who is pretty solid to becoming somebody who was a little bit more recognized internationally uh, as an athlete and as a coach. I really learned after that um, <laughs> how easy it is to to be tempted by the promise of gains in the future and to fall into the trap of just assuming that more is always better. Uh, there is one particular challenge that I still have not completed yet. I think physically it might be the hardest challenge that anyone will have done in parkour from just a pure output perspective. Uh, it's basically you're sprinting a hundred meters and there's four jumps in between this hundred meter dash that you have to complete. All four are quite big. They're at about 12 feet up and they're also technical. The last jump is the biggest and the most technical. Uh, <laughs> And my goal has always been to complete this, uh, link all four of these. Nobody's ever linked more than, um, nobody's ever really tried to even link more than one. It's kind of a very specific type of challenge that, that people are starting to get into more, but, but nobody else has really like gone and looked at it. And when I was training specifically for that challenge, uh, really heavy when I was kind of in my van life pro athlete, 100% phase, uh, that is where I started hitting overuse. And I was doing like two days in the gym. I was doing a ton of plyometric training just to make sure that my body was able to handle the force I'd need for the last of that four jumps uh, while I was fatigued. And I also had not really done the appropriate work on like diet and sleep to realize where my breaking point was. And so by the time I went to go do it, felt prepped, um, I ended up having uh, ankle and wrist issues, bunch of inflammation, some sprains, and that led down the road to uh, a partial Achilles tear and a couple other things. So walking it back from that, you know, I got to kind of not quite crash and burn, but I definitely crashed and I was able to sort of reassess and experiment slowly, slowly adding stuff back in and uh, just really like paying attention. Cause if I had listened to myself back then and been honest and not let the kind of ego and intention to accomplish this goal get in the way of acknowledging where my body was at. I don't think I would have had those injuries, um, but I wasn't mature enough in that, in that moment to be able to step back and say, let me take a week off, you know, juggle some of these pieces of my training around a little bit and, and reassess. Um, that's, that's partially a maturity thing, um, partially an experience thing. And I think it's something that many, many athletes in all sports can probably <laughs> relate to is uh, having that crash and burn moment. Whether... Yeah, was... <laughs> yeah, go for it. I was, I was going to say it was it was also something like you're trying for something no other human has ever done too. you know, like the crash and burn is prob probably in there. But I, one of the points I did like that you made, like that was super good. is like the, the, the well, how did you frame it? It's like the promise of future returns, you know, and, yeah. and uh, somewhere I think a lot of athletes I know myself got stuck in that, too, because that's why I asked that question, too. So like, it's those newbie gains you get instantly from like a weight room or barbell. And that's where people get like addicted to. It's like, holy crap, my whole game just changed. Um, And then it's like for me, it was like 
more, more, more. Like I, okay, if I had that much gains and then now I had one more plate to the 400 pound basketball, I have one more plate, then I'm going to become even better athlete. But it, it hits that law of diminishing returns where it's like, it, it was just, you were so shit at it before that. Like you <laughs> saw these newbie gains and you went from shit to suck. And that, that gap from shit to suck was huge for you. But now you're, you're spending so much time on that, but you've already, you've already made the gap that you need to make there. And now you now to find that kind of that, that, that next rabbit hole of like, where, where is that next low hanging fruit? Like, where is that next piece? And I think that's why athletes right now get team sport athletes get so much out of parkour type things is because it is the low hanging fruit for them. Like that's where you don't want to get trapped. Like that's where people kind of get, it's like I talk about the movement Yogi part too. And I don't think we get stuck in parkour, but we get stuck in like the movement side of things too. And it's like, okay, it's now it's movement. It's like, that was just the low hanging fruit for that athlete at that moment. Now, like as a coach, you got to stay in the, you got to try to fight to stay in that middle ground of what is the low hanging fruit as we continue to go forward and not get stuck in either the movements yogi side or the meathead side, because that is kind of where that crash and burn and just banging your head against the wall comes into. And I've definitely banged my head against a lot of walls in, in that kind of process. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think you're totally, you're right. Uh, I think that movement to use it like the capital M movement <laughs> Um, I think it's, it's a really beautiful thing for a lot of people. And my personal take on it has always been that once you've done two or three sessions, 95% of the people that do that will have gotten everything out of it that they're going to get out of it. Um, and they've done, you know, the two and a half hours and they've learned a ton and it's incredibly beneficial for them. And they're probably not going to get that much more out of a lot of time that they're going to invest to then get the next thing. And strength work is the same way. I think parkour is the same way. Once you've learned how to land really, really, really well, once you've learned kind of the proprioceptive skills that parkour develops with external objects that are a little different from the ones you learn in traditional sports, most people, that's where they'll stop. That's the low hanging fruit. And, you know, that's all they needed. Um, it's hard to recognize though, where that line is. And that's the value of a good coach is, is that they can feed your obsession just the right amount. <laughs> you know, they give you the one slice of cake, but then they take the rest of the cake away. And it's yeah. like, all right, you don't, you don't need the whole cake. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's awesome. Uh, and I, I, I've been geeking out about that, 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 that I've been talking probably way too much about the, the podcast listeners are probably sick of me talking about that, but that, that shit, the suck mentality and continue. I like that piece of cake thing too. Now I'm going to steal that analogy too, and use that too many times too. But it's like, like you talked about like feed that obsession and get it going and like pull it away and, and going from that obsession piece you wrote a book on parkour and this is something that i, I want to geek out about you talk about the nerd side of you like writing a book is pretty pretty sweet and that's something i really really want to do in my lifetime too so you wrote the book the parkour roadmap i'm super interested in the obsessive like you have to be obsessed about something to write a whole book on it uh what was that process of creation like what was the process of writing this like and and how did you have the idea of like, okay, my muse right now is going to be that I'm going to write this book. Like how, how did that kind of go, go through from, from being the athlete to like writing the book? Like usually you don't see the athlete write the book. You see somebody write the book about the athlete. Yeah. I mean, the fun thing about being kind of like a frontiersman in a sport is that you have to wear every hat <laughs> at some point. And it's, it's really nice because it puts you in a lot of uncomfortable new positions and you just try to adapt for me, the book came out of just a realization working with a lot of students uh, all across the country doing workshops and, and working with my students that I coach regularly in New York City. 
I would often make references to things that to me were like really integral to parkour culture or practice. And they had no idea what I was talking about. And it wasn't because they were not in the sport. It was because the resources often didn't exist anymore. Uh, the fact that parkour grew up online, you know, we're, we're parkour as a sport. We're kind of like the kid that had the MySpace page and then they deleted their MySpace page and then they started a Facebook account, et cetera, et cetera. And you're like tracking all these various stages. But at a certain point, the information that was really helpful for me back in 2007 just isn't there online. So I wanted to catalog as much of that information as I could and compile it in a way that somebody who came into the sport now or who, you know, went to a parkour gym and wanted their parents to understand what the sport was about, they could just get this book and look up all the basics that they needed. It's not necessarily a how to do parkour book. My, my intention wasn't to like guide the reader through how to practice, um, but it was to give them the resources to kind of take their own journey in parkour in a responsible way. So I'm like, I won't teach you how to do the Kong vault, but here's the best five tutorials. You can pick it. And then from there, like go, go wild. And here's also 10 athletes that are incredibly good at this specific movement pattern. And then all of their affiliate links and teams and videos that they've been in, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to build this like parkour black hole that people could, you know, start reading, get distracted, click a link, and then two and a half hours later, realized that they'd like gone down the rabbit hole and learned a ton of things unintentionally that they had, had no idea that they even wanted to know about. Uh, and that was that was the purpose, the writing process kind of because of that. I think it made it a little easier. I had a clear goal and I was able to just kind of compile a list of all of the things that I wanted folks to have access to uh, first as a practitioner, then kind of as a coach and then as I guess like a custodian of the culture and the history. Cause I've always been a, a really big nerd for the history and the culture of parkour. And we're super lucky that the founders of our sport are all alive and still practicing it. And you can hit them up on Instagram and say, Hey, Sebastian Foucault, you know, how are you doing? I'd love to talk to you about what it was like to start this sport in 1983 uh, and he'll respond. And it's amazing. So that part, I really wanted to make sure came through as well. And, um, I think just that was, that was the motivation for it. And once I'd started, you just had to keep, I just had to keep knocking away at it. It was the same mindset that I had for my parkour training, where if I started to get into a rut, it was like, all right, maybe I don't have the motivation and discipline to keep digging this hole deeper. Let me move to the next chapter, work on an adjacent section open my vision up a little bit, get excited by something new and then go back to the part that I got stuck on and then try and reintegrate all of it. And it, it took about a year. Um, and you know, a lot of that knowledge was already in my head and it was just getting it onto the paper and, and finding the right links and, and then letting folks know that that resource existed. Yeah. That, that's awesome. What was the process? You, cause you did, you said you had a goal, you said you had all these ideas in your head that that's one thing. Like, and there's a lot of people with a ton of knowledge, but like getting that onto the piece of paper is something that's different. What was kind of, what was specifically like your writing process? Like, were you writing every day, like forcing like, Hey, uh, I'm going to write every single day. I'm going to do this and like, hopefully find something. What was kind of like that writing process? Like, because it, it, it's a much different skill set to have it in your head and actually get it on a piece of paper. And then it's also a different skill set too. There's a lot of people that can write and have the ability to write 
write, but to write a book and to like have the consistency to write the book like that, that's also another big step into it. So what was that kind of like for you? Yeah. So I almost looked at it the way that I would write programming for myself or for somebody else. Um, I would pick a topic one. And at the beginning, it was easy. I started with the history. That one was pretty narrative. So I could just kind of write it out, leave it alone, let it sit and then go back and look at it and say, okay, what's good about this? What kind of sucks? Let's finesse it a little bit. And every morning, generally, uh, I probably didn't do it every single morning, but most mornings um, I take the bus in to work to go coach in, in the city. I would go and write notes on my phone, pop in a coffee shop for a couple hours. Usually I just kind of piece together a skeleton for what I wanted to write and then start to fill it out. So a lot of times it started out as bullet points. Then those bullet points would sort of become like section headings. And I would write a little paragraph under each bullet point. And then sometimes I would be able to integrate all of that into one cohesive thing. And other times I'd take a piece of it and, you know, chuck it in kind of my like, not garbage bin folder, but my miscellaneous and, and then realize, oh, I've got a paragraph about this very specific topic, like, um, you know, how to train parkour if you're in the Midwest and you only have strip malls and uh, Walmart parking lots. <laughs> and I have a video for that that I found six months ago, and it's just right here, like living in my little miscellaneous folder. Um, and yeah, just being consistent. And anytime I start getting discouraged, I try to just change gears and find something that seemed interesting to me to write about or research that day. And a lot of times, once I started like researching it a little bit or just writing down a structure, something would pique my interest enough that I could write a little bit more. And then that would have something that would then lead me to write a little teeny bit more. And, and that was kind of the process. So it was, it was pretty incremental. Um, I, I did try to be consistent and I had enough time around my work schedule that I was able to kind of schedule it in a relatively consistent way. And, and that definitely helped with the flow of writing. That's pretty awesome. It is like uh, picking away at the stone to be able to get it done, which, which is, which is sweet. When you finished it, I, I hear a lot of authors talk about that. When you finished it, like, how did you know it was done? Like, how did you establish like this is done? Yeah, I, oof, man, I, I knew that I wanted to write kind of a, I wanted to start it with the history and I wanted to finish with kind of where I saw parkour going. And when I had gone through everything that I thought I could speak to in the sport where I added value, I kind of went back, did a couple read throughs, tried to pick any spots where I hadn't, you know, added value, took those out, tried to think if there was anybody that I knew that had good information that I hadn't included, figure out a way to incorporate those people specifically or those topics. Uh, and then when I'd done that like four or five times and I couldn't find anything, I wrote the kind of where it's going section. And I was like, all right, <laughs> you know, that's, I'm sure I'll look back at this in five years and, and want to fix a bunch of things. But uh, I sent it off and just kind of had the kill your babies mentality of the the Hollywood editor or director and it for the most part has held up quite quite nicely I'm, I'm still very proud of it uh it was it was a cool accomplishment and it's interesting to read kind of where I saw the community going five years ago in that final chapter and now that it's been out for coming up on six years 
uh, seeing what's been really accurate and what was off has been very fun. <laughs> yeah, that that's awesome. Is is there a, is there a, a sequel coming up or is there another book that you're working on? I've thought of doing this like a second edition. Uh, I think I would keep it digital for the okay. second edition because we ended up, thankfully, we sold out of all of our physical copies. Um, so there are some floating around on Amazon, but they're like way more expensive than they should be. And folks will ask me if I've got any in my basement. I'm like, I do not. I have one copy for myself and that's it. Um, but the format of the book, it works really, really well as an ebook anyway. And it's way easier to update and keep the information relevant um, when you're consistent and able to do it online and, and not have to kind of reprint every time something changes. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I geek out about that writing process. So, so that, that was great to hear. I saw they wrote that. And I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a grill about this. Was there anything as a coach that like when you finished writing that book, that was like, like, did it open your eyes? Anything like, like, Oh, like, cause I, I find myself even just like going back to old posts and going back to blog posts and myself like, Oh, I, I was writing about that. I thought about that. And like, one like writing a whole book i feel like it solidifies a lot of thought processes for you and i find myself when i present i do the same thing like it was like presenting is really good for me because again i have that creative mindset i have all these ideas and it forces you to funnel it into something um and like what do you actually believe and you talked about going back through like where did i not have value like where am i bsing like where am i not adding value in that presentation where i should was super powerful for me as a coach how has this book helped you um as a coach, like knowing your philosophies and knowing what you're saying and maybe just going back and like, Oh, I forgot about that. How, how is that for you as a coach? I think my biggest takeaway as a coach is it helped me realize where I could be unique in the like parkour coaching space where I really did bring in a perspective that I felt was underrepresented or maybe just kind of assumed assumed to exist mm -hmm. and was not not vocalized as clearly as as maybe it would be helpful to have vocalized um it also really helped me realize that a lot of the things i was recommending for these people i wasn't doing for my own training so i benefited as an athlete writing uh you know i was writing like here's some track programming that i got from you know chatting with like Bushek Snyder about uh his triple jump programming and then how to build endurance for athletes that are running like the 200 to 400 to 800 and here's what that interval training maybe could look like and realizing that oh I have not done any of that training for <laughs> myself, you know <laughs> and uh seeing how I could potentially incorporate that so coaching myself I learned some stuff and then kind of how I fit into the overall coaching space. I definitely, like you said, it helped me solidify where I brought value. It helped me solidify kind of my voice um, as a coach and a lot of those philosophies and realize that uh, <laughs> in some ways, my biggest philosophy as a coach was to, to not be too rigorous with a single philosophy and to just continue to live in that ambiguous space of, searching for knowledge and then testing that knowledge all of the time and being okay throwing away things that you swore by six years ago because now you realize that you were totally off the mark or actually this other stimulus did the thing that you thought your exercise was performing the entire time um yeah <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a, that's a pretty sweet quote to end up end the podcast on. So, coach, thank you for being on. This this was sweet. I got to dive into your, your professional background, your your coaching background, and and your book background. So that was awesome. Thank you for taking the time to do this.
Thank you so much, Austin. I hope some of your listeners that are uh, traditional sports coaches and athletes, you know, this gives them some motivation to dig into parkour a little bit more. Yeah, you, you heard it from him. You guys got to start implementing it. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.